0: Now wildfires aren't new we've had wildfires before, but it seems to me and we'll find out uh, that wildfires threatening communities causing evacuations and in many cases doing destruction. I mean, we know in Alberta with fort Mcmurray and and we know what happened in Halifax this year we had an entire town burned down in b c two summers ago. I don't remember hearing that growing up so uh we gotta we gotta figure out how we limit this kind of disaster if we can. We're going to chat now with Chris Stockdale, a fire research scientist with the Canadian Forest Service in Edmonton. Uh, Chris, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. No worries. Glad to be here. So we're going to be talking about something called interface fires, right? So we've got wildfires and then we've got wildfires that are interface fires. So what's that term define?
1: Well, the interface is, uh, you'll hear sometimes the term the wildland-urban interface and sometimes just the human interface. So the wildland-urban interface is where, like, forest fires, like, so fires burning through forests or even through grasslands. We should really call them wildland fires <sighs> rather than forest fires. Sometimes it's grasslands. Um uh, but where we have our communities. So, you know, like the amount of, you think about the perimeter of a community or, you know, the various subdivisions we put out there. And, you know, everyone likes, everyone likes trees in their yard. Everyone likes, uh, you know, to live, you know, on an, on an acreage, live on the outside of town, live where the, you know, they feel they're in nature. But that's also the place where the, wildfires tend to converge. Um, And uh, so when we talk about the interface, that's the wildland-urban interface. But to be more broad, when we talk about the human interface, I mean, there's a lot of other issues out there, too. It's not just where we have our houses. Like, think about the various work camps in northern Alberta. Think about pipelines. Think about transmission lines. Think about all the various economic infrastructure we have across the landscape. And that, obviously, through time, grows. So, you know, the amount of area of the interface has been increasing through time, but the amount of fire interacting with the increase when interacting with that interface isn't increasing linearly. Like, you know, if we've had 10% increase in interface, it's not that we've just had 10% increase in fires that are interacting with that interface. We're having a significantly higher proportion. So yes, uh, interface fires are a growing, growing problem.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. Like, am, am I crazy? Cause I was thinking about it and I, I 2011, Slave Lake, I was there. 2016, mm-hmm. Fort McMurray, I was there. Uh, so I, 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 those ones, but I, prior to the Slave Lake win, I don't remember communities being threatened or damaged, you know, and, and homes lost by, I'm sure it happened, but I don't remember it. So w- was that far less common, say, 20 years ago than it is today?
1: It certainly was less common, but let's not forget about some of the things that happened in 2003 in British Columbia. Kelowna, there was pretty big fires that burned into Kelowna and Barrier. Yep. But yeah. indeed, I mean, indeed, since, you know, I mean, say since the turn of the millennia, we've had a significant increase in the number of these incidents. I mean, you mentioned Slave Lake, you mentioned Fort McMurray. Yep. But if we were to look a little more broadly, I mean, well, you mentioned in the lead into me talking with you, you mentioned Lytton in B.C., yep. Last year, I mean, tons of fire, or sorry, 2017 and 18, tons of fires throughout British Columbia, like Williams Lake under threat. Um, Cache Creek had some significant fires that burned into the edge of the community. Kamloops in danger. Um Salmon Arm is a pretty common occurrence in Salmon Arm, people freaking out about fires. And then we're just talking about the West right now. I mean, if we go into the North as well, Indigenous communities have been facing wildfire danger for a long, long time. And many of those communities don't have roads that go in and out of them. They're fly in, fly out, or boats required to get people out so when fire is approaching those sorts of communities, the evacuation efforts can be very dangerous uh, to try to get people out of the way. Um, Or, you know, communities that only have a single road in and a single you know, one way in and out. And if that road happens to be where the fire is, how do you get people out of those places? But, you know, we're just talking about the West and I've talked about the Indigenous communities. But this year, we've got Sayward in British, on Vancouver Island right now under threat of a wildfire. We have Shelburne in Nova Scotia, yeah. under threat of a wildfire. We have Chappé and Quebec under threat of a wildfire. We have, we had Fort St. John, we've had Valley View, we've had Fox Creek, et cetera, in Alberta. Like, we haven't seen communities under threat across the entire nation before.
0: Okay. And now, listen, after Fort McMurray, especially, I had a bunch of conversations. I did a bunch of stories. I've talked to people on this show about, hey, listen, there's things we can do to protect communities. It's called mitigation. We need to start talking about mitigation because, like you say, the fires are there and they're happening and they're happening a lot. So what are we going to do to try and protect our communities? What are some of the things that we can do that we know we should be doing to try and limit or mitigate the damage that can be done?
1: sure uh let 's zoom out i 'm going to zoom out a little bit before I come back in okay, on you. and I just want to talk about kind of wildland fire risk in general when we talk about risk of wildfire it 's the combination of the likelihood of the event occurring, so like is a fire going to happen, and then if it was going to happen, what would its impact be okay so there 's a lot of things we can do to uh, impact to affect both sides of that equation, so we can affect the likelihood of fire by mitigating or managing the fuels, um, the vegetation on the landscape. We'll get into more details in a moment. But we can also manage the risk by dealing with what the potential impact would be, and that involves things like municipal planning and building materials and how people take care of their yards and the things that they have around their homes. So, like, we have control over a couple of elements of this thing that, you know, is threatening us right now. And those efforts are, so say on the fuel management side, um, for one, it's just reducing the sheer volume of fuel. So, you know, how much is around it, an interbase area, um, especially in British Columbia, when we think about the 2017, 2018 and 2021 fire seasons, tons and tons of dead material from the mountain pine beetle epidemic that ripped through that province. So managing the dead fuel load is one very critical component within the wildland-urban interface. Um, but also forest management even further out from communities can have a significant impact about how easily fires spread across the landscape. So, you know, the spatial arrangement of how the cut blocks are are laid out on the landscape, what species are replanted after uh, forest operations. People often equate, you know, forest management or logging as a fuel treatment. But they're not quite the same thing. I mean, they, there's a lot of similarities. Obviously, you're, you're altering the fuel, mm-hmm. but, but logging takes away the big stuff. Like logging takes away the stuff that goes to the mill that gets turned into two by fours that people use. So it takes away the big stuff, but it leaves behind all the little stuff. It leaves behind the branches, the twigs, the tops of the trees. And then you take away the canopy, forest canopy, all sorts of grasses and shrubs grow up. So that can become quite a volatile fuel complex as opposed to a fuel treatment, which is designed to take away the little stuff and leave behind the big stuff. The big stuff is hard to ignite unless there's a lot of little stuff to generate the heat to get it going. I mean, think about a campfire, right? Like, that's kindling. You use kindling to get the big going. Exactly. So if you can remove some of that little stuff. So forest management coupled with some prescribed burning could be a very effective way of dealing with things on the greater landscape.
0: Okay. Now, hang on a second, Chris. I think because the other aspect is what we do to build our communities. But can you hang on for half a second so we can squeeze in a break and then we'll get to that? Absolutely. Okay. I'll take a quick break. We're chatting with Chris Stockdale. Uh, Chris is a fire research scientist with the Canadian Forest Service. We'll back with more right after this. We're speaking with Chris Stockdale who is a fire research scientist with the Canadian Forest Service based in Edmonton and we're talking about these fires and how they're impacting communities so much. You know what's going on in Halifax, you know what happened in our province, you know what happened in BC and, and like Chris said, we've got fires burning across the country once again this spring um, and some of the things that we've talked about before that we need to do to protect ourselves. We've gone through the forest management, Chris just walking us through some of the things we can do there um, and then there's the other aspect of this. This, Chris, I think, and I've heard we've talked about this before, and that's sort of that's more on us in terms of where we build, how we build, and how we sort of you know even be a little bit more aware of the fact that fire is a threat when we're building communities.
1: Absolutely, um, your listeners may have heard the term "fire smart" before. It's a pretty nebulous term. I mean, it's a the a brand. It's uh, you know, through Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Center uh, runs an organization called Fire Smart that has. Uh, branch offices like across the country. But, I mean, it's it's kind of focused on helping people understand what can individuals do to make their own homes and their own communities safer. So, I mean, several of those factors are zoning issues. So, you know, where do you allow... Or I shouldn't say where do you allow it makes it sound so authoritarian, but I mean, how do you design suburbs and communities so that you minimize the interface? So some of those things would be things like managing what type of trees are growing around your community, like in northern Alberta, throughout the boreal parts of all of Canada, spruce trees like to burn. I mean, they just like to burn. So, you know, lots and lots of spruce is a pretty volatile thing to have in your neighborhood. So there are ways of, you know, maybe reduce the amount of spruce and put in some deciduous things. Also, you know, we tend to have this way of spraying the houses around the outside of the community and having all the industrial or commercial stuff on the center of the community. You know, another way you might want to think about designing a community is like, you know, having your golf course and your shopping center and your sports fields and, you know, the things that are breaks in the fuel complex more around the outside or allowing more of that sort of material, you know, those sorts of uh zoning sorts of things to help out. But then more immediately, like with a homeowner especially during a fire situation but i mean to be aware of it beforehand because as we've seen these things happen suddenly and super quick like nobody expected that fire in shelburne and nova scotia to blow up like it did and now there's communities under evacuation so i mean what are you building your house out of if you live in a fire prone world cedar shakes on your roof aren't the best <laughs> roofing choice um yet everyone loves them you know not everyone but i mean you know some people just have this like romantic attachment to cedar shakes on their roof in the middle of edmonton and calgary probably not a bad thing but if you're living in the suburbs and in the interface in a smaller community probably not the best choice same with wood siding versus you know you know other types of siding materials you could have on your house also Think about, you know, where you have your barbecue and your propane tank. Now, that's something you can move really quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's okay to have your barbecue on your deck, but, you know, if there's a wild fryer, you know, in your community, you probably should move your barbecue away and take the propane tank away from the side of your house. Don't put your wood pile beside the side of the house. Things like that, things that help that catch fire really easily. Another thing many people overlook is their gutters, eavesdrops. Many, many house fires start In the eaves troughs really sparks and yes sparks like you've probably seen pictures of ember showers you know like you know so a fire burning a couple of kilometers away or a few hundred meters away spraying sparks now if those sparks are landing in your gutters and your gutters are clean they're just going to go out but if your gutters are full of dead leaves you're starting a fire in your gutters it licks under the you know under your roofing materials and that's one of the most vulnerable points of entry for fire uh in houses. Same with a wood deck. You know, like are there gaps or things under your wood deck for sparks to get under? Things like that are just I mean, we talk about common sense, yeah. but it's only common it's only common if you tell people about it. Well, this is so. the thing because
0: like we've been talking about some of these things, like the the eaves and the deck. That's new to me, but I mean in terms of mitigation, shouldn't we have been singing this from the rooftops going back to well twenty eleven in Alberta with Slave Lake?
1: Well, I mean, those of us in the fire management community have been seeing it from the r- rooftops. It's, it's, a, it's where, a failing on my part as a member of the media, I think. Well, I mean, it, it's also understandable because these things have, in the past, tended to be less frequent. So, you know, you have a bad fire a year. it was like, "Oh, that was the yeah. one," and you know, that was the one in a hundred event. We're safe for a good long time now. But we're now seeing these so-called one in a hundred events becoming much. They're supposed to be one in a hundred, but they're happening year over year over year, or only with a few years break. Like seeing this national scale crisis we're in right now, and once we get through to the end, it's only June first right That's the now. Thing. Yeah, there's a lot of fire season to go. So, I mean, we're not at the record area ever burned in Canada, but we are, have never seen this much area burned by this time of year, nor have we seen this much area burned across such a wide geographic area. Yeah. And I think this might help though. This might help. We've only, like, think about it this way. Only the Yukon, Nunavut, Prince Edward Island, and Newfoundland have not had a community evacuated this year. Oh my goodness. Really? Yes. Isn't that mind-blowing? That is mind-blowing, yeah. So when it starts to affect, so it's one thing when it affects one town, that town gets really wound up and says, oh my God, we've got to take fire suppression seriously or fire mitigation seriously, but the rest of the country doesn't seem to care because it didn't happen to them. But when it's starting to happen everywhere all at once, I think, I mean, I I hope. Time to pay attention, yeah. I'm hopeful that this is getting people's attention and that they're going to start recognizing the need to start taking this much more seriously. Yeah,
0: me too. Chris, fantastic information this morning. Thank you so much for being here. This was great.